Good Wednesday afternoon. This is Ozarks at Large for a wintry February 23rd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. You're listening to KUAF, and you can listen to us wherever you are by accessing the free audio streams made available through the KUAF app. In just a few minutes on Ozarks at Large, dealing with wrongful convictions. So, for example, it'll take potentially six to ten years once you start working on an innocence case to kind of get it through. And actually to potentially find or establish actual innocence. Next fall, Tiffany Murphy, a professor of law at the University of Arkansas, will lead a seminar about wrongful convictions. She'll tell us about it just ahead. And in our second half hour today, big things are coming for the arts and artists in downtown Springdale. We'll step inside 214 by cash to learn about their efforts to expand creative opportunities in Springdale and northwest Arkansas. The region remains in a winter storm warning until 6 tomorrow night. If you had something scheduled in the next 48 hours, check to make sure it's still happening. The National Weather Service forecast includes concerns that winter precipitation between now and tomorrow evening could create power outages, hazardous travel, and tree damage because of the storm. The Arkansas Department of Health reports 13 deaths from COVID-19 in the Monday report, bringing the state's total to just more than 10,300 deaths. Active cases and hospitalizations continue to drop. The first day of candidate filings is over, and the first few hours included 275 people filing to run for state or federal office at the state capitol. Among the candidates taking advantage of the first opportunity, five people wishing to succeed term-limited Governor Asa Hutchinson. Four Democrats, including Chris Jones, Supa Sepraseth Mays, Jay Martin, and James Russ Russell filed, as did Republican Sarah Huckabee Sanders. The filing period ends on Tuesday. Governor Asa Hutchinson is creating the Arkansas Council on Future Mobility. He signed an executive order doing so yesterday. He says the council will lay the foundation to make the state a leader in developing technology fields, focusing on self-driving and electric cars, along with the implementation of the use of drones. The goal of the council that I am creating by executive order today is to ensure that we are prepared for electrification, autonomous vehicles, and advanced air mobility to integrate into our existing infrastructure and create an environment in which they can thrive. That is the goal of it. The governor says he expects a report from the council toward the end of this year. Arkansas lawmakers are giving final approval to rules that will allow for mobile sports betting in Arkansas. Members of the Joint Budget Committee yesterday approved the rule change with no debate. The rule allows the state's three casinos to accept online bets on sports games. Casinos could begin accepting online bets as soon as March 4th. Razorback basketball teams are bringing back mixed results from last night's road games. The men defeated Florida 82-74 to to claim the first Razorback victory in Gainesville since Arkansas played there as defending national champions in 1995. The Arkansas women dropped their third straight game, losing at Mississippi 70-62. to And... Thanks to everyone who was with us in person and virtually last night at St. James Baptist Church in Fayetteville for our third live recording of the podcast, Undisciplined. Later this hour, we'll hear highlights from the previous recording that took place last Friday night in Fort Smith.
This is Ozarks at Large. We know the legal system isn't perfect, and we also know working to overturn a wrongful conviction isn't easy. Next fall, students in the University of Arkansas Honors College will have an opportunity to explore circumstances surrounding wrongful convictions as part of an Honors College signature seminar series called Wrongful Convictions. The seminar will be led by Tiffany Murphy, a professor of law at the University of Arkansas and the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Director of the Criminal Practice Clinic at the UA Law School. She'll also give a public lecture as an overview of the seminar Monday via Zoom at 5.15 p.m. Earlier this month, we reached out to her via Zoom to find out more about the lecture and the seminar. She says she's taught this subject of wrongful convictions to different audiences in the past, to forensic science students with no legal background, to various law classes, and to continuing legal education sessions. But I've never really taught it for um, undergrads. And and so what I'm looking at um, is how potentially to help them understand the, the legal complexities of how to litigate an innocence case and why the system is so reticent to fix it. So for example, it'll take potentially six to 10 years once you start working on an innocence case to kind of get it through and actually to potentially find or establish actual innocence. So, and there are situations where I've represented clients who we can't do it. There's just no legal mechanism to actually fix the wrongful conviction. So one of the the key things for the students is helping them understand why this happens in the the criminal justice system, why the system is so reticent to fix it, and, and then to understand legally how we kind of go about investigating the cases and, and figuring out what's an innocent, an actual innocence case and what is it. I love that you, you've taught this with so many different disciplines. With the law students, that makes sense. With forensic scientists, of course, who are going to be looking for evidence that can help the innocent, and now with undergrads. And why I like that so much is because this is a subject that should touch all of us, whether we're in the legal world or not. Right. And, and this is one of the things that, you know, as I have done this over, you know, most of my career, I, I had my first innocence case when I was doing capital defense, capital habeas, which is the last level of appeals. And I had never even understood as a construct, even when I was going through law school and, and, and until I actually had a case where, you know, my co-counsels and I were like, this person is innocent. And then it kind of, it doesn't necessarily change the way you approach the case, but obviously the stakes are higher, is I can't let the system execute an innocent person. And when you're doing a capital case, you get a lot more structure around it, a lot more review because the stakes are higher. And so when I went to the Innocence Project and we were doing non-capital cases, those cases are just left. That once you're convicted and you're not sentenced to death, you don't get as much review. It's a much harder road to toe. And so one of the things, you know, in talking to a variety of constituents is understanding how this happens and explaining to families. I ended up dealing with a lot of families who would call me and say, I think my person is actually innocent or they didn't do this. Can you help us? And I mean, from all demographics, from all political persuasions, because people don't understand this hits everybody. 
And, and, and this, you know, that, that is, I think the biggest thing that folks don't understand is how this can sweep up for anyone. Well, so many of us were taught in school, right? That the, the legal system works, that this is, you know, jury of your peers, that sort of thing. For some of us, I think there's that little thing in the back of our head that just doesn't want to believe that there can be that many wrongful convictions. You've got to get just past that belief or hope to begin with. Yeah. And I, I want, when I tell people like how this happens, like Alaska Senator, I believe Ted Stevens, if I remember his name correctly, he was dealing with a wrongful conviction. This is a Senator who was being prosecuted for something he didn't do. And the, and, and, and the court was like, you've withheld evidence showing that he didn't do this. U.S. Attorney's Office, FBI. This is a set like this happens to a lot of people. It's not just the conception of it. Is, it does hit a lot of the like poor people and and economically disadvantaged and people who who are not necessarily who are learning disabled or have some kind of an impairment. Yes, but this does happen across the spectrum, and I think we need to understand that we're in the two thousands now. Of, of people who've been exonerated in this country from like the modern area. So like since DNA started, but the vast majority of exonerations now are non-DNA. And people need to understand those are harder cases to prove. They're, they're much harder to establish and get courts to understand how this happened. Yeah, I guess with an innocence case, you're not just starting from ground, from, from zero, you're starting from back of zero because you have this, this official document that says this person is guilty. So you've got to work even harder, right? Yes. So one of the things that, and this is something I talk about a lot in class, is getting the students to understand how you actually start this process. When I start a case, and, and it does take a village, one of the things I, I, I stress to students is I don't do this in a vacuum. I usually have a lot of attorneys, paralegals, investigators, students, working on these cases because they're massive. So what we ended up doing is stripping it down because sometimes there's not even a crime. Sometimes, and those are the ones that are harder to prove when you actually strip it down and you realize it wasn't an arson, it was an electrical fire. So there's no crime here. And that's a very, this, this is why the forensic science people are so important to get them to understand that to actually have science undergirding what you're doing. Understanding that what we thought was arson for years was not arson. What ended up happening for arson was a revolutionary thing that they actually started burning houses down and recording it. And what they understood radically changed. And that's what I'm trying to get people to understand or students or, or whomever I'm talking to is understanding that when you're looking at these cases, sometimes there's not a crime. Sometimes it is, you know, how, you know, false confession. How do you get someone to confess? It is not actually that hard. If you interrogate them over days, over periods, or the person is learning disabled, it makes them much more easy to make a confession that doesn't actually bear out with the case. You've got to have, a, I would assume, a certain amount of tenacity perseverance to do this work. And I'm wondering, do you have to have a little psychology? Because I would want to be someone who gives someone hope, like be a people pleaser. 
But that's probably a dangerous territory when you're working with innocence cases. I, I tell any potential client, we take the case, you know, we do the case how we do the case. If we happen to find that you're innocent, wonderful. If we find out you're guilty, we're closing your case. So, so how we treat the cases are the same. We take it down to the ground. We start with the fact of what was the crime? And we start re, like building it up. I love it because it's like a massive puzzle. And I love this part of it. I get to be investigator. I get to be kind of, this is what I like about um, doing these cases, doing habeas and post-conviction. You get to take everything down and redo it. Actually methodically kind of investigate. You try to find like the police files, all of the defense attorney files, the prosecution files, everything that you could potentially find of how this case came to be. How did we get to a conviction? So we read the transcript, and this is the, probably one of the best things for students to look at is transcripts, because a lot of times when you look at a, a transcript of a trial, you, you don't have any emotion to it. There are no people there. It's just paper, and you're just reading what people are saying. And I, to me, this is the worst part of the case. I hate reading transcripts because it's like a train wreck in slow motion. And I end up very frustrated because I'm like, where are the objections? Where are the litigation things that I teach now in my clinic that are not happening in these older cases? And getting students to understand, because a lot of times when they read the transcript, they know something is wrong. And that's the first step. You may not know all the legal stuff, but you know it's wrong. And then we can talk about why you think it's wrong. Then you also have the challenge. People don't like to be to find out they were wrong for nope. whatever reason. So you've got those roadblocks. Right. And that probably isn't always inside the legal realm. I mean, if if you've got a, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a good old boy network that wants to protect each other, you're going to run into some real challenges. It's starting to change now because we're getting a lot more prosecutors' offices with conviction integrity units, some states are much more vigilant about realizing that this has happened. So it's it's starting to turn a little bit. Um, and, and when you can get a, a prosecutor who understands, you know, this happened X number of years ago and how we are looking at cases now is not on what we did at that. And if you can present evidence to them that they will consider, it's much easier if you can get the prosecutor on your side and say, this is what we found. Why don't you look at it? If you want to talk to people, that's great. Let's see if we can get there. And and some, but it, it is true. Most people don't want to admit they made this radical of a mistake. Part of this experience is also having a public lecture, which has to condense or take an excerpt from what you'll do in the seminar. How do you prepare for that? And do you know what you're going to talk about in, in that public lecture? So, so the public lecture, I have no idea yet, because there's a lot of things to talk about. And I often when I teach, I want to, I want to know what the questions are. I, I want to be able to have a conversation with my students. It's not just me getting up there and lecturing and say, here's your PowerPoint and we're done. This to me is a, a lecture for me to kind of have a conversation. And, you know, we'll have readings and we'll have things to talk about, but I want to know what they're, I'll give them the, the, the overview. This is how it happens. And this is where we are. But I often want to have the conversation of what are your questions? 
what is it about this that concerns you? What is it like? Because one of the things I get a lot is, how do you know? Like, how do you know if someone's innocent? And I don't. And that's the biggest misconception of like, I have some divine knowledge. Like, there's no, that's just not how it works. You have to work the process. And a lot of times when I'm teaching, I will potentially go off and, and you know, I have a structure, but I want to have that conversation because I think that's where true knowledge happens. When you have and you're free and you're comfortable to have the conversation and ask the question, and I always get like, this is a stupid question. There are no such things. There are questions. Can this be fulfilling work? It can be. It can also be extremely frustrating. You know, I, I've had cases, I've, I've worked on, I think about eight or nine exonerations over the course of my career. And it's exciting when you when you are actually able to get someone out of prison. But that's just the first step, trying to get them reacclimated in society when they've been gone 10, 15, 20, 30 years. It's, it's an up, that's just the first step of getting them out. You've got to get them back into society. Tiffany Murphy is a professor of law and the associate dean for academic affairs and director of the criminal practice clinic at the University of Arkansas. She will lead an honors college signature seminar series called Wrongful Convictions next fall. And she'll deliver a preview lecture of that seminar, open to the public via Zoom, Monday at 5.15 p.m. At OzarksAtLarge.com, we have a link to the form that will start you on the way to register for Monday's virtual lecture. We spoke with Tiffany Murphy via Zoom. And we should point out that our conversation was recorded early in February. So when she said she had no idea what she would say at Monday's lecture, she said that some time ago. This is Ozarks at Large. Support for KUAF comes from Malco Theaters, offering reserved seating at the Rogers Cinema Grill, Springdale Cinema Grill, and Razorback Cinema Grill and IMAX Theater in Fayetteville. Showtimes, tickets, and more information available at malco.com or the Malco app. KUAF is supported by Dog Party USA, offering supervised boarding and daycare in an off-leash environment for dogs of all sizes. Dog Party follows strict vaccine requirements and COVID guidelines for a safe environment. More information available at dogpartyusa.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Undisciplined, the podcast collaboration between the University of Arkansas's African and African American Studies program and KUAF, was live in Fort Smith at a Keybard Gallery on Friday to a packed house to talk about, well, Fort Smith. Dr. Karee Batten, host of Undisciplined, and Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore, the producer of Undisciplined, talked with a panel of Fort Smith leaders to discuss the past, present, and future of the city especially for its black residents. The panel included Chris Cheney, a local barbershop owner, Sherry Tolliver, a historian of Fort Smith, Talisha Richardson, executive director of 646 Downtown, John Blue, executive director of diversity and inclusion at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, and Jay Richardson, a state representative for the 78th District that covers parts of Fort Smith. The first question Friday night was, what is Fort Smith to you? We'll hear first from Chris Cheney. To me, Fort Smith is the greatest city this side of the Mississippi. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Elaborate. Elaborate. What makes it so? Oh, man. Fort Smith is the biggest small town 
that you'll ever meet. The community is is awesome. You know, trials and tribulations. The, the community always comes together. Um, it's it's a beautiful city. Um, of course, I'm born and raised here. Had a chance in my early 20s to, I still look like I'm in my 20s, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a chance in my early 20s to do a lot of traveling uh, with music. And I've been to some of the biggest cities in America, and I realized they all have the same problems. But what I also realized, they don't have the community that we have in Fort Smith at all. Um, and I just, I just love it. Uh, th- I, I don't really have anything bad to say about Fort Smith. I love this city. I've had an opportunity many times to say, man, I should just leave. And I'm thinking, no, why, why would I leave this? I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Scenery is great. Uh, and again, the community is what makes this place even as great as it is, because even though it's a, it's a well, we, we fell behind Fayetteville in the census this past, and I, I'm kind of upset about that piece of it, but uh, <laughs> but as big as it is, it's just that small. You know, everybody knows everybody, um, and being able to, uh, you know, reach out. You know, I have some amazing mentors here in this town, and so I just, I absolutely love it. Wouldn't change it for the world. I, I love Fort Smith as well. I grew up here in a different time from most of you here because I'm much older. So when I grew up in, in Fort Smith, uh, the city was segregated. I grew up in the, in the 50s and the early 60s, and I left in 63 and was gone for almost 30 years. But I came back in, in uh, 1990, and I love it here. I couldn't wait to get away in 63, and then I couldn't wait to get back. Um, I missed it. I miss the community, just like Chris said. Um, I, mi- I miss everything about it because when, when I came back, uh, my girlfriend and I, we came back, we started a black newspaper here in town in 1993. Uh, she missed her paper in Los Angeles. I missed the black paper in Kansas City, Missouri. And so we got together and we said, why don't we start one here? And so we did. But anyway, we would see people in grocery stores and, and they would look familiar. And we said, we used to say, who is, who is your mother? Who, who are your parents? And we would always know them. Yeah. And, and then when we came back, we thought, who is your grandmother? And who is your grandfather? <laughs> because, you know, they were, they were older and we were older. But anyway, I love Fort Smith. It is a great community to be in. It's a great community to, to retire to, great place to raise a family, a great place to live, great colleges and, and uh, medical facilities and it's just just wonderful it just has everything so miss tolliver said it best and i like to describe it as there's people are used to six six degrees of separation when you come to fort smith it's two degrees you know everybody knows everybody or they're going to find a way to connect with you and um we came back we were gone for almost 20 years but I remember before I left was at the time that you had just come back. Uh-huh. And um, I was going off to college, and they highlighted me going off to college. You know, like the, the Lincoln Echo, this young lady is going off to Spelman College. And, <laughs> and I'm like, we got a newspaper, and they put my name in it. You know? So it was I just a, I remember. <laughs> and so you, you have a, there's a sense of community, a sense of uh, village. And um, although I did not grow up in the era that Miss Tolliver did, the the things that I recall is the stories because I was that nosy child, right? That listened to the days of Lincoln High School, that looked 
when my mom was driving down Ninth Street and I'm seeing the pool hall and I'm seeing all these different things and I remember the nostalgia of those buildings from a lens of a of a small child. So when we came back, it was like, wow, what can I do? What can we do collectively to recreate these fond memories mm-hmm. that were really segregation, but to me it was more community, more community. Oh. All right. Um, for me, I'm probably the, I'm the only person on the panel that's not from Fort Smith. So being from Florida, um, yeah, Fort Smith is, is different. You know? <laughs> it's, it's different. It's, it's real different. It's real different. Um, it's a great small city um, with a lot of potential. I think still a lot of untapped potential um, in this city. Um, and once that potential is tapped here in Fort Smith, I think that the, the, the city is going to flourish even more. Um, I can see where you know, infrastructure and things of that nature are kind of taking off here in Fort Smith. But I think once we can really tap into the untapped potential that's in the city, that the city will flourish even more. Yeah. Uh, so, like Talisha said, we, we moved back uh, a few years ago. Uh, we'd been gone almost 20 years. So when we left... Uh, I was determined to get the heck out of Dodge, right? I wanted to get out of Fort Smith. And, and what I realized is is leaving, as much as I would tell Talisha, we're not going back, we're not going back. Every time we came back, I wanted to come back a little more. And some of the things that want, that brought me, that really drove me coming back, family, of course. But uh, I, I started seeing some of the guys I, I grew up with in terms of mentors. Uh, our, our current mayor, Mr. McGill, uh, Benny Shepard, Coach Relaford. I mean, all of these guys I would come back, I would see, and, and they would always say, well, 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 Jay, now, when you coming back? You know, so um, those things help, help drive you, and that sense of community, that sense of family. Uh, we, we had just had our son, so we made the decision to bring it back because we wanted him to feel what that's like, uh, and, and it's been one of the best moves we made. Can I can I say about I, I about Jay do. Richardson yeah. that I know his I knew his grandparents I knew his grandparents his grandmother used to teach me in Sunday school mm. so this is the kind of community we have I know his his grandmother babe and even his uh, grandfather Dennis uh, Walker and his mother and his uncle was a classmate of mine and so. We just, we just grew up like family, neighbors, and we all went to the same churches, and all the kids went to the same school because there was only one, well, there was several black grade schools, but only one black high school, and it was actually a junior high and a senior high combined, and that was Lincoln. But the grade schools, you had Dunbar, you had uh, Washington, Washington, you had uh, St. John, and Howard. Howard School was the second public school built in 1887, right behind Bell Point. And Howard School is still functioning today as a school, and it's a blue ribbon school. Yes. I mean, it's a, an award-winning school. A-plus art school as well. Our and, son goes there. Right, so. right. Their son goes there, yeah, at Howard. So we have a lot to be very proud of as, as, a, as a community, as a culture. And even though we grew up in a, I grew up in a city, a small city within a larger city, we had boundaries. But we still were able to make relationships work between the races even. 
even though we had separate schools, separate churches, separate businesses, couldn't go to the hospitals, couldn't do a lot of things you could not participate in. But we still, we, we form relationships between uh, one another. It was a unique kind of experience. We just heard from Sherry Tolliver, a historian of Fort Smith. She was part of a panel Friday night at a Keybard gallery in Fort Smith. It was a live recording of the Undisciplined podcast. That panel also included Chris Cheney, Talisha Richardson, John Blue, and State Representative Jay Richardson. You can hear the full discussion today in your podcast feed, and you'll have one last opportunity to attend a live recording of Undisciplined Friday night at the Jones Center in Springdale weather permitting. For more details, visit KUAF.com slash live podcast. Undiscipline is a collaboration between KUAF, the University of Arkansas's African and African American Studies program, and Ozarks at Large. I'm Lisa Mullins. As Western countries condemn the Russian invasion into Ukraine, one country that's sticking by President Putin is China. How close is the Russia-China relationship, and how is China assessing the Russian military intervention in Ukraine? That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now, today at 1 o'clock on KUAF. And you can always listen to us by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. And now, let's talk some numbers. The numbers of patients with COVID-19 continue to drop for Northwest Arkansas hospitals. As of last night, there were 61 patients with the virus in hospitals in Benton and Washington County, six fewer than the same time Monday night, far fewer than the 97 virus patients in Northwest Arkansas hospitals at the close of business on Friday. A big number, 20 and a half million. That's the amount of medical marijuana Arkansas's dispensaries sold in January. According to the State Department of Finance and Administration, Arkansas collected $2.84 million in taxes on that January medical marijuana. Since the first dispensary opened in May 2019, the state has collected more than $60 million in taxes. We now will have to wait another 15 days to see Ray Wiley Hubbard at Temple Live in Fort Smith. The show was to have taken place tomorrow, but as of this morning, postponed until March 11th, a Friday, because of the weather. Original tickets sold for tomorrow's show will be honored on March 11th. Yesterday was all about one number, the number two. It was a palindromic date that read 2 both left to right and right to left. Last night, the Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team picked up its 22nd win of the year. Leading scorer J.D. Note finished with, yeah, you guess it, 22 points. And speaking of twos, yesterday, along with Democrats and Republicans, write-in candidates could file to run for office in Arkansas, and a pair of write-in candidates filed for a gubernatorial run, Michael Woodward and Ellis Presley. For the record, this candidate, who has been on the Arkansas ballot before running for other offices, is Elvis D. Presley, not Elvis A. Presley. This living Elvis, who's running for governor, is, according to the Associated Press, an entertainer who performs as the legendary Elvis Presley. Hey, are you a college student and a podcast junkie? NPR wants to hear your stories for the College Podcast Challenge. Share a podcast, anything from a social issue, an investigative report, or just a captivating story, and you could hear yourself on NPR. Deadline for submissions is February 28th. Go to studentpodcastchallenge.npr.org for rules and information. This is Ozarks at Large. Wednesdays, Charlie Allison, 
the executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas, delivers stories about the people, events, and places connected to the first 150 years of the University of Arkansas. This week, he examines a story of sadness and joy. Charlie tells us about E. Lynn Harris, an Arkansas native and University of Arkansas student who broke more than one barrier in Arkansas and, through his novels, developed a collection of admirers around the world. As a kid growing up in Little Rock, Everett Lynn Harris found solace in his library card. It was a passport to the writings of James Baldwin and Maya Angelou. It was also a temporary free pass away from a physically abusive stepfather who called him a sissy and when drunk beat him and his mother. And with the broad variety of books that he had read by his graduation from Little Rocks Hall High School in 1973, that library card also proved to be a calling card of sorts for his admission to the University of Arkansas. What the card couldn't resolve for Harris was the inward understanding that he was gay. Harris wrote in his memoir, quote, I don't recall the exact day I discovered I was gay or different. When I was young, I always felt that it was something that only God and I knew, that it was our little secret and made me feel closer to him. Still, being gay was the one thing about me that I prayed constantly that God would change. He didn't. Being openly gay or lesbian prior to the 1970s was rare. Simply being honest about one's sexual orientation could elicit ostracization, loss of employment, and physical violence. Harris understood this explicitly and threw himself into college life as a way to avoid dealing with his sexual orientation. He became the first African-American editor of the Razorback Yearbook. He competed and earned a spot as the first African-American male cheerleader, and he became president of his fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. He also dated women to cut off any rumors that he might be gay, keeping that part of himself buried. He graduated in 1977. By 1990, Harris was living in Washington, D.C., and despondent about his life. He was depressed by the number of friends who had died from the AIDS epidemic, the lack of a strong, loving relationship in his life, and a deep self-hatred that had persisted while he lived in the shadow of a misrepresented identity. Harris tried to kill himself. However, in the emergency room of Howard University Hospital, after his overdose, he realized that he wanted to live. He wasn't wholly clear why yet, but he knew he needed to live. A year later, he wrote and self-published a novel, Invisible Life, which told the story of a bisexual man who engaged in gay relationships on the down low. The publisher Doubleday picked it up, reprinted it in paperback, and contracted with Harris for three more novels. Soon, his books were hitting the bestseller lists, and he stepped out of the shadows to acknowledge his own sexual identity. His fourth novel, If This World Were Mine, won the James Baldwin Award for Literary Excellence in 1997. And at the end of the decade, the Arkansas Alumni Association honored Harris with its citation of distinguished alumni. He returned to the university in 2003 to teach courses on contemporary black literature and creative writing. He also returned to the athletic sidelines, helping out as a mentor for the Razorback cheerleading squad. In enduring the very difficult periods of his life and in opening up his true self to friends, colleagues, and family, Harris found an unexpected joy. In a 2000 interview with Michelle Parks, Harris said, quote, What I love about my life now is that the love and the relationships are pure and true. I've been very fortunate. Maybe it's the generations, maybe it's the people, but I've been very fortunate to have men who are not put off by the fact that I'm gay and who are not afraid to say that they love me. Justice and acceptance for lesbian and gay students, as well as eventually bisexual, transgender, non-binary, and other sexual orientations on campus, has not followed a simple arc either. But the gay and lesbian rights movement started on campus about the same time that Harris graduated from the university. 
1976, lesbian students on campus organized and took their own collective step forward. They formed a student organization that year, officially named the University of Arkansas Associated Lesbians, but they referred to themselves as the Razor Dykes. They offered moral support for students who faced hostility on campus, provided student speakers for question and answer sessions at interested classes, and invited outside speakers to give talks on campus. Like other women's organizations on campus, they requested and received some funding through the Campus Women's Center. In 1978, though, some members of the Associated Student Government questioned and then rescinded funding for the organization, primarily on homophobic grounds. The organization regrouped, expanded its mission, and renamed itself the Gay and Lesbian Student Association. In 1983, members of the association submitted a budget for $136 to the Student Senate, which turned them down. University administrators indicated that they would not overrule the decisions of the Student Senate. What civility existed on campus for gays and lesbians deteriorated over the next two years. A student group called Angels of War organized to help people, quote, who are being pressured by homosexuals. A state legislator, Travis Dowd, introduced a resolution to, quote, contain the spread of homosexuality on the Fayetteville campus, close quote. Several masked men fired bottle rockets into a room in which the association members were meeting. And then a member of the Gay and Lesbian Student Association was outed to his parents. The next year, the association sent a note to the new chancellor, Willard Gatewood, saying that the university environment had become repressive. It read, quote, Gay faculty and staff worry about the possible loss of their jobs. Gay students are subjected to degrading and oppressive treatment in the classroom when instructors make derogatory remarks or jokes about homosexuality. Few gay members of the university community feel able to speak out or complain against their own oppression because they fear recrimination. The association met with Gatewood and asked that the university set out a policy to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. When the Student Senate again turned down the Association for Student Funding, members of the Gay and Lesbian Student Alliance filed suit against the university. The federal judge hearing the case eventually gave a split ruling, saying that the university was responsible for the funding actions of student groups within the university, but that the decision by the student government was not discriminatory. Well, both sides appealed, with the Gay and Lesbian Student Association arguing against the non-discrimination finding and the university arguing that it was not responsible for the student government's decisions. In 1988, the 8th Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the district court's decision on discrimination. The student senate denial of funding had been a violation of the First Amendment. Justice Richard Arnold, an alumnus of the university, wrote the brief saying, quote, We hold that a public body that chooses to fund speech or expression must do so even-handedly, without discriminating among recipients on the basis of their ideology. The university need not supply funds to student organizations, but once having decided to do so, it is bound by the First Amendment to act without regard to the content of the ideas being expressed. In the years since, the atmosphere on campus has continued to improve as national perceptions and federal law has shifted toward inclusion and tolerance. Not only were students public about their identity, but faculty, staff, deans, and administrators of various sexual orientations were also stepping forward as leaders on campus. A university is often the first setting in which an LGBTQ student, especially those who come from a small town or rural setting, is able to spend time around people who understand and support them. Since that court order, the university has moved steadily toward broader and more inclusive acceptance and acknowledgement of each individual. A Pride student organization continues to represent the interests of the LGBTQ community on campus, and the Multicultural Center offers a mentoring program that pairs faculty and staff members with LGBTQ students to give support, guidance, and resources.
In 2015, the Arkansas Alumni Association established a Pride Alumni Society. And in 2019, a student organization called the Lavender Society was organized to celebrate academic achievements of members of the LGBTQ community. Sadly, uh, E. Lynn Harris didn't get to see a lot of these recent changes. He died in 2009 of heart disease at the age of 54. For anyone who met E. Lynn Harris, though, his smile, his joy, his optimism leapt out at you in a contagious way, in a way that made you think better things were still coming. Charlie Allison is the executive editor at the University of Arkansas, and each Wednesday he gives us a bit of history from the University of Arkansas's first 150 years as the school continues to observe its sesquicentennial. More about the 150 years and celebrations related to the anniversary at 150.uark.edu. Jacqueline Weersman Mosley is a professor of human development and family sciences at the University of Arkansas. She researches violence against women and recently published a study with one of her students about violence by NFL players off the field and how the league addresses these offenses. She says that most fans may already realize the NFL has a bigger problem with off-field violence than other professional sports, but the case of Ray Rice really brought attention to the issue. Just hearing about the story, people really didn't think much about it, but it was when there was a video that was released. And there are some cases where videos are released, or pictures, right, when you see the victim. And I think that's powerful these days, is that social media and obviously really well-done journalism is helping us see it. So we know it's out there. You can hear Weersman Mosley talk more about the study and the latest Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast of the University of Arkansas. Listen at KUAF.com or ArkansasResearch.uark.edu. This is Ozarks at Large. Before a painter starts, there is a blank canvas. And before a writer begins, there is a blank page. Okay, blank screen. Imagine if an entire building with gallery walls, a stage, a yard, a lobby was blank, waiting for art to occupy the building and adjacent grounds. That's basically what exists in downtown Springdale at 214 the former art center of the Ozarks. CASH, Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange, is using the venue at 214 South Main to reimagine the venerable art space and to reimagine arts in Springdale and Northwest Arkansas. Five different funding opportunities, the Creative Exchange Fund, will help creative people fill the space there. Last week, the building was quiet when we met with three staff members who are working to activate every square inch this spring with all kinds of art. We sat around a folding table and talked about the possible futures for 214. Amber Paradin, artist and community manager at 214, says the new era for the structure is in the midst of a two-year grant period of testing different community partnerships individual artists and arts organizations to come through the space and sort of test the limits of what this building is capable of. Um, And over the last year, we've been working kind of quietly and diligently to put together the Creative Exchange Fund, which is a grant opportunity that we're going to be awarding, uh, or that we are currently uh, working towards uh, awarding local artists and regional artists uh, grant opportunities to produce new and creative and innovative work in this facility. The Creative Fund Exchange will award between $1,500 and $15,000 to creative people who want to help bring art to the building. Amber Paradin says they're intentional to use the term creative, since not everybody identifies as an artist. People who can apply can be thinking about music, film, visual arts, circus arts, or even curation. One of the grant categories is Call for Curators. Valia Madewell, Art Service Coordinator for CASH, says she wants people to think about what kind of shows 
they'd like to have the community experience. You know, inviting those that have have curatorial experience and inviting those that don't have curatorial experience that are like asking them, like, what do you want to see? What exhibits or community events do you not see that need to be seen? Um, and that can be, you know, visual art, that can be spoken word that can be film, you know, anything that the community can walk by and will be here for a couple of weeks and be able to partake in. Valley and Amber use a couple of terms a lot when they're describing what they envision for 214. One is blowing the doors wide open. The other is testing the limits of the building. That's where John Wayne Farr, the facilities and technical manager of the venue, will have to come in. Testing the limits certainly will require some technical know-how. So what that means to me, at least, in a sense, is, is us bringing in all these different varieties of groups and all these different production types and all these different skill sets and talents to see how the space responds to it and also how the people respond to the space as we kind of further determine how this 214 exactly can serve those needs in all those different types. The building, which for years has hosted plays, concerts, and art shows, comes ready with a black box theater and other seemingly ready-to-go arts spaces. Every time I step into this space, I daydream almost, I think. Um, I can envision myself, if I were someone applying for these grants, just really pushing the limits of what each space could offer, whether it be the black box, we've seen it activated as a film and media space. We've seen it utilized as a music performance venue, a dance and movement area, a gallery and exhibit, a vendor market, all of those things. So I think along with all these other spaces, they all have great capacity and capabilities. And Thalia Madewell adds, using the outside too. Also, reimagining this space and rejuvenating it and branding it as kind of um, an arts venue for a new era. This new era stems not just from a simple wish, but from a survey of artists in northwest Arkansas. Cash conducted that survey in 2021, the Cash Canvas. Amber Paradin, artist and community manager at 214, says the answers received in that survey are helping form the next direction for 214. And in that survey, we we asked over 400 local artists what their needs were. Um, and we asked a variety of questions. And one of them that stuck out to us was um, that over 75% of those artists were lacking time and space to create new work. And so we sort of sat with that. And that's where sort of the root of where the Creative Exchange Fund came from. She says Cash worked in partnerships with the Tyson Family Foundation to develop a program to put funds into the hands of local and regional artists and give them space to create. Valia Madewell says this is a chance to pitch new ideas, take creative risks, and invite creative people in who might not otherwise think they have a spot to produce art. They're pitching all these ideas to us, and they're really out of the box. And we're like, we love it. We love it. Put it in a proposal. We would love for you to apply. We would love to give you the space um, to do that and the time and the resources to do that. It's such fertile ground right here. Along with the call for curators grant that's part of the Creative Exchange Fund, there are grants for musicians, the Mixtape Music Series, an artist in residency fund, platform for performance-based artists, and a category for event producers. There have been info sessions throughout February, all of which were recorded and can be viewed by interested creative folks. The application period is open now and remains so until 5 p.m. March 14th. Applicants will be reviewed by a panel 
and an advisory committee, awardees notified in May. And Preparedon says the programming begins in late May and early June. The goal is for the funds to give life to at least 80 activations of art. And Preparedon says all of this will be taking place in the heart of Springdale, where she says the Downtown Springdale Association is placing a premium on arts. We are right smack in the middle of the arts district in downtown Springdale. And so a lot of people aren't familiar with that yet because there's not a lot of activity that illustrates that. And so we're excited about this space sort of being that anchor within that arts district that helps blossom and spreads through the neighborhood and, and, and inspires all the creatives that are here and, and gets them out of their house and, and begins to engage with that district. For now, until the Creative Exchange grant winners begin to have their art take shape, the staff is working to make sure new art and some longtime community partners all have chances to be in the 214 venue. Calendar Olympics. We have been um, trying to coordinate. We're, so, so part of this entire program is we're excited to invite the community in to use the space and to try the space, but we're also um, limiting some of that capacity so that community members can still come in and rent the venue and work with us. So what that means is Calendar Olympics. We have been working to make sure we can stack everything up and honor um, existing partnerships and people coming into the space, but also making space for these new creative projects to come in. So our day-to-day -day is um, just communicating with partners. We have some existing partners that are in this space that include um, Interweave Community School. They have um, one of the classrooms where they're teaching um, art classes to um, non-English speaking uh, artists. And then we also partnered with the Latinx Theater Project. They're here on a regular basis. So those are the existing partners that we're, we're continuing to work with. You can find out more about 214 and the Creative Exchange Fund at cashcreate.org and look for the 214 tabs. And come spring, John Wayne Farr, the facilities and technical manager, says he has expectations. I wanna see it bustling with creative life. I want to see walk in and you know there's something on the gallery walls. There's a group of artists maybe practicing or working on new works here in, in a potential studio or you know backstage maybe behind the stage you're seeing set design being built out for an upcoming production that's going to be going on. And maybe in the black box it's like someone's in there again like recording a music video for example. We visited 214 in downtown Springdale last week. This is Ozarks at Large. Judicial appointments are hardly ever without controversy. That's the case in the U.S. and also in Pakistan. They just could not accept that this, for the first time, a female judge, for her merit, is being appointed in the Supreme Court. The controversy around the first time a woman has been appointed to Pakistan's highest court. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered can be heard today from 3 to 6 on KUAF. And you can listen as well by using the free KUAF app. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we find out more about the future of transportation and transportation manufacturing in Arkansas. And we'll talk with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis about the live music schedule across the region as conditions allow. Oh, and Friday on our show, Timothy invites Austin Cash to play for us. My name is Austin Cash. This is Dogwood Variations.
That's music you can hear on our Friday show. But you can hear music tomorrow, too, with Timothy's rundown of live music and Sound Perimeter, our regular Thursday journey across musical boundaries with Leah Uribe. Ozarks at Large, every weekday at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF, and when you want, with the Ozarks at Large podcast. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Mycelium Networks, a Fayetteville startup building a decentralized wireless network for IoT devices in northwest Arkansas, compensating individuals for hosting a small gateway at their home or business to help provide local coverage. ConnectNWA.com for more information. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Ben-Hur there in Newton County. Timothy Dennis produced today's program. Contributors today included Dr. Karee Banton and Charlie Allison. The podcast on discipline is produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. If you download or subscribe to the Undisciplined podcast, today you can hear the latest episode, which was recorded last Friday night in downtown Fort Smith. Last night's session, which took place at St. James Baptist Church in Fayetteville, will be ready for you next Wednesday as a full episode. As of right now, we're scheduled to have our last undisciplined live recording of the month Friday night at the Jones Center in Springdale. Stay tuned. Let's let's find out where we go in the next uh, 24 to 36 hours with the weather. You can listen to the latest episode of Ozarks at Large by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. You can also subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast. It, too, available through all major podcast distributors. Tomorrow morning at 5.30 and 7.30, Daniel Carruth will have more news from our region and our state. His newscasts inside Morning Edition are produced every weekday inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kelms. Thanks so much for being with us. Please stay safe, stay warm. We'll talk again soon. Have a great rest of your Wednesday.